The book of Romans. It has been called the Bible within a Bible. The compendium of Christian doctrine. The quintessential of saving doctrine. The most profound book in existence. The most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. It is impossible to study the book of Romans too much. In fact, Martin Luther said, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart. That means memorize every word of the book and know it by heart. But occupy himself with it every day as daily bread for the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Hallelujah. So I hope to whet your appetites this morning. Now the fast track through the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the first of 21 letters in the New Testament. A quiz. How many books are in the New Testament? Answer, 27. 21 out of 27 books are letters. That means that without question, letters are the primary literary form of the New Testament. The other thing you need to realize is that until about a hundred years, in the vicinity of a hundred years of the time Paul is writing all of his letters, letters were being written for the first time. Letters were not written through history because there was no way to get from place to place. You didn't have to write a letter to the guy next door. Everything was oral tradition. The only writing was that which were documents that needed to be preserved, like the Bible and a few other historical documents. But letters were not written. It was only in Paul's day, because of the Roman roads, that there was travel from place to place all over the Mediterranean. And so letters were now being written for the first time. So Paul was on the front end of the power curve, utilizing a means of communication that had not existed before. Paul would have loved the Internet. Paul would have been on Facebook, I'm telling you. Yes, it is true. Of the 21, Paul wrote 13. Of the 13, the first one in the Bible that's included in sequence is Romans. And part of the reason is because of the incredible breadth of teaching that this contains. It is worth memorizing. If you as families want to camp out somewhere this summer in the Word of God and really get into it, on the backside of your notes is some good practical ways of personalizing this within your family. And don't bother about the other books in terms of your family devotions for the summer. Just camp out in the book of Romans. You cannot go wrong. But the book of Acts is the book in our, the Bible sequence that immediately precedes it. And it ends with Paul in a prison cell in Rome. Before Paul was in that prison cell, he had written the book of Romans because the book of Romans was written before Paul ever got to Rome. In fact, for a long time, Paul had been longing to go to Rome. And he talks about that in his book. But God had hindered him from getting there too soon. Part of the reason is because God wanted him to write this book. Had he gotten there sooner, he wouldn't have had to write it. 
Even the delays in life are used by God redemptively to accomplish His perfect purpose. No, the book of Romans is a letter. It was written before Paul ever got there. It is the Gospel Manifesto. It's the best explanation of the Gospel in a single book ever written through all time. But it was not primarily written as a Gospel Manifesto. It was primarily written as a missionary manifesto because Paul was preparing Rome for his arrival because he was shifting from Antioch to Rome as his missionary headquarters. And he was writing this book to prepare the soil for his arrival. He wrote it to prepare them relationally, doctrinally, and morally in every way to get ready for my coming so that from Rome he might be launched to Spain and to as much of the world as God by His grace would allow him to get to. That was the purpose of the book of Romans. Now to get our arms around this book. As deep and rich as it is, it's really not that difficult to outline. The first three chapters, we have a problem. The next chapters, four through eight, I'm sorry, four through eleven, God has a solution. And then twelve through sixteen is our, are the ex, uh, really the exhortations and application Now that God, God's answer is applied to our lives, now how do we live in light of God's answer and His solution? Now let's go back and and look at that a little bit more carefully. The first three chapters, we have a problem. This problem is identified very clearly from verse 17 on. In verse 17, there is this almost like a meteor comes roaring into the the atmosphere and lands in Rome and it's called the righteousness of God. It's a ball of fire that lands in Rome, this, this righteousness of God. Now listen to this. For in the Gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The whole book of Romans flows out of that one verse. The righteousness of God comes like a meteor. And it's this giant ember of righteousness of God. It's like, whoa! Now, in response to the righteousness of God, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So Paul begins by putting in the middle of the discussion this hot ember of the righteousness of God. And then immediately, once the righteousness of God is revealed, It's like, whoa, the wrath of God is revealed because none of us measure up to that righteousness. And as his argument develops, he shows how the immoral will be judged by that righteousness. The moral will be judged by that righteousness. The religious will be judged by that righteousness. And all will be judged by that righteousness. And at the end of his discussion, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Three months ago, this issue of Time Magazine came out. And I've had this, and it was never time. This morning, the Lord said, you got to bring it. This is one of the most pitiful things. This is extremely sad. A pastor in Grand Rapids is written a book. It's got a great title and a delusional thesis. The title is Love Wins. And love does win. But his thesis raises this question. What if there is no hell? This is the wrong question. This has got an easy answer. If there's no hell, I don't lose anything. I've had a great life. God's blessed me head over heels. And I've got nothing to worry about. The better question is, what if there is hell? If there is hell, I've got a Savior. And if you've lived thinking there is no hell, you've got a real problem. So this is the wrong question. But I've got news for you. All roads do not lead to heaven. That is false teaching. And as pitiful as it is that a brilliant evangelical Christian who's pastoring a large, growing congregation in one of the evangelical bastions of our country is deceiving his people and a host of other people online by suggesting that it doesn't really matter. We're all going to get there one way or another. Listen to me. Romans chapter 1. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. And the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. You come to chapter 2. You therefore have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else because you pass judgment, you do the same things. Verse 17, chapter 2, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The second half of Romans chapter 2 deals with the religious people who have the law and how will they be saved? Their religiousness will not save them. Then chapter 3, the first half, is one of the clearest explanations on the depravity of our human condition, whether immoral, moral, religious, irreligious, young, old, regardless of our financial posture, it says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good. There, and then it goes through the parts of the body. Their mouths are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. There is no fear of God before them. And then this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that Every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, the law came to make us conscious of sin. 
Here's the word picture. Imagine four Georgia Tech students decide they want to go down to Miami and swim to Nassau. The first student jumps in, and he gets about 500 yards offshore, gets a cramp, and drowns. The second student somehow makes it halfway across, all the way uh, miles over to Nassau, and dies of exhaustion. The third gets uh, within a, a mile or two of Nassau, and he can't make it any further and waves for help, and they pick him up, but he couldn't make it. The fourth gets within sight of Nassau, got so excited he died of a heart attack. Who made it to Nassau? None of them. None of them made it. It doesn't matter. Some may appear more righteous. But our righteousness is not going to get us to heaven. It may get some apparently closer. But close when it comes to heaven doesn't count. A number of years ago, I was driving down a, 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 an interstate through central Florida. And there was this beautiful ranch, as they have in central Florida, and there was this uh, these big fences and an iron gate, and over the iron gate, up lifted high, was the sign, Almost Heaven. You know, they were proud of what they had. And I can appreciate that to an extent. But when you look at it for what it is, at face value, you know what Almost Heaven is? What happens to people who almost go to Heaven? Hell. Almost heaven is hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way. Now, that is the groundwork. That is the comprehensive explanation of our problem as clearly defined in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We come to chapter 4, and the the whole tone changes. Chapter 4 begins talking about God's solution and being justified by faith and how Abraham was not justified by works. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's that operative word from Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is being revealed from heaven. How did Abraham become righteous? How did he tap into that fireball of God's righteousness? It wasn't by any works that he did, but by faith. And then... Chapter 5 explains how we appropriate that same righteousness and how we are justified by faith. Chapters 6 through 8 talk about being sanctified by faith. Once we are justified in God's sight, then we are sanctified. In fact, the whole teaching on salvation shows the predestination of salvation, the selection of salvation, the justification of salvation, the sanctification of salvation, and the glorification of salvation. It's all here. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, God's sovereignty over all things. Chapter 8 is God's choice of Israel. I'm sorry, chapter 9, God's choice of of Israel in the first place. Chapter 10, the present condition of Israel and how they have been laid aside because of their unbelief. 
But then chapter 11, the future that God has for the nation of Israel to be restored once the full number of Gentiles have been added. It's the full view of God's redemptive plan through all history. And then we come to chapter 12. Chapter 12 through 16, these five chapters are all about our response to this incredible gospel, to the incredible solution that God has for our problems. Once that we have been saved, where does it begin? Chapter 12, present your bodies and then use your gifts then step into love, and then our, the way we're to act in society toward the government and toward weaker Christians. And then chapters 15 and 16, his closing personal remarks and his final blessings. Now, with all of this, how do you do justice to the book of Romans? I want to suggest to you that the book of Romans is like a hammer. We're going to lower the hammer. We're going to let the hammer do the work. The book of Romans. The Bible says that the Word of God, Jeremiah 23, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. There's a breaker anointing on the book of Romans. And we want to look at several key verses in the book of Romans And may God use these words to break through in our lives. We begin chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because I'm something special? No. Because the gospel is something special. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek and the Gentile. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't depend on me to be some great theologian or some great spokesperson to be able to craft my words perfectly. No, but I don't have to be ashamed to speak for Jesus because the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that word power is in the Greek word dunamos, from which we get dynamite. It's the power enough to shake. See, there's breaker anointing on this verse, on the very gospel that it's representing. Hallelujah. And then this one. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, deserving judgment. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've looked at the fact that none of us, just like Georgia Tech students going down to Miami, none of them would make it to NASA. Some are going to get closer than others, but none of them are going to make it. So it is for us. Some of us may be better than others, but none of us are going to measure up to God's perfect standard. So the wages of our sin is death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when we understand that, we understand Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And God wants you today to step into that, to, to receive the peace with God that doesn't come as a result of anything you can do to please Him. But it's a result of putting your faith in Jesus Christ who has done everything necessary to make you right with God. And then Romans 5.5. 5. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. You know, I think of dads today. Many of you fathers are a little bit sideways on this day, knowing that you haven't been a perfect father, with some regrets. But the beauty is this. God does not want your identity as a father to be shaped by what you have done. If you're going to celebrate this day based on your performance, I'm going to challenge you to set your sights higher. As fathers, God does not expect us to shape our identity by our performance because all of us will come up wanting. We rather are to shape our identity on the fatherhood of God. And His acceptance of us. And when we understand that, that it's not based on what I've done, I can shed the judgment of my failure as a father. And I can embrace the love of the Father God for me and know that I am accepted to the Father based on what Jesus has done And that breaks off of me the judgment of my own failures, of putting my identity in the wrong things. Now, fathers, may I encourage you to join me today to take off the wrong source of identity and to embrace God's preferred source. In His fatherhood of us, we are accepted. And in that, God pours out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we can say, Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation. Because my justification was not based on what I've done, so my condemnation shouldn't be based on what I've done either. Jesus has paid it all. He took my condemnation. He took my failures. So now there is no condemnation. My identity is in the Father. In fact, the great Father's Day verse, Romans chapter 8, Verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's what I'm talking about. 
Celebrate Father's Day. Let the Holy Spirit bear witness with your spirit and you can cry out to God, Abba, Father, Daddy. I understand now that you are my Father, that I'm acceptable, not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for me. No. And what about prayer? You can't overlook Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you don't know how to pray, what to pray for? It says it right here. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself, prays through us with groanings too deep for words. He's a great prayer instructor. And then we come to the end of Romans chapter 8. The Big Ten. These are ten things that cannot separate us from the love of God. Are you ready? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And go back to verse 36 and you find the other seven. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. So not ten, not seven, not seventeen things. None of those seventeen can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. And then chapter 12. This is a breakthrough moment that some of us today are ready. We're waiting to take this moment. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercies, in view of God's panorama of love for us, and in view of His solution for our problem, offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We come to chapter 15. Let's read this together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say to all of us, do you today sitting here have all joy and all peace? It says that it's possible. None left out. All joy. All peace. Now if it said, may the God of hope give you joy and peace, that would be good. If it said, may the God of hope give you all joy and peace, that would be even better. But it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. But if you don't mind writing in your Bible, circle the next little word, as. As you trust in Him. 
And let me tell you, if anywhere in your spirit you are lacking in joy or peace, let that lack reveal an area where you are not trusting in God, because if you were, this would be true. So if there is any area where you're lacking joy or lacking peace today, it's a warning that says, trust God, trust God. You can trust God as you trust in Him. This will be true of you. And you know, brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that God is a God of hope? There's times where we lose hope, but God never does. If you've lost hope, take your eyes off of yourself, put your eyes on the Lord and the God of hope. As you trust in Him, He will fill you with all joy and peace so that you, your hope will be restored so that you can then overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's got breaker anointing all over it. How many of you would like a little more joy and peace? As you trust in Him, you can take that step today. The final verse we're going to look at from this glorious book. Remember, the book of Romans, as great as it is as an exposition of salvation, was not primarily written as an exposition on salvation it was primarily written to position Paul with his mission to Rome and from Rome to the nations. And Paul said, even though he had never been there before, even though he had tried many times and failed, he was able to say to the Romans, I know, I know that when I come to you, I don't know when it's going to, but I know I'm going to come. That when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. And what I want to say to every one of you is that verse is for you. When you talk with your children today, you can face them this way. When you talk to your neighbors tomorrow, your business associates, you can face them with this mindset. When you go on your mission trip or start vacation Bible school and stand in front of your students and you're feeling a little fidgety like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? This is for you. I know. When you get back to the Balkans, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. What does Lilburn need? Lilburn doesn't need Fred. But it needs the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Because it's not about us. We had a problem. God fixed it. Hallelujah. And now He's got an assignment for all of us. I know when I come to you, port of prince I'm going to come, not in a half a measure, the full measure of the blessing of Christ.
Who is the answer? Who has the solution to all the problems that we will encounter? Hallelujah. Would you pray with me?